welcome everybody to another episode of Chunky Theological Salsa, the podcast that takes a deeper dive into things that matter and things that, frankly, we just want to talk about. I want to talk about this. Do you want to talk about this, Evan? Uh, yeah. Good answer. And today, the <laughs> this that I'm talking about is the one and only Coach John Moore. John, welcome to the podcast. I am so happy to be here, Scott and Evan. Well, I just want to tell you, you look fantastic today. And uh, that's very important in a podcast, to look good. Uh-huh. But uh, for those of you never that... Never felt better, never <laughs> looked worse. Scott, I'm going to tell you something. Actually, our hot water heater is being replaced today, so I have not showered today. You know what? So I don't look very good. That, I was, I was sort of picking that up somehow, but that's okay. I think between the three of us, we're a good match. I've been told for years that I have a face for radio. So, yeah. uh, but let's let's talk a little bit. E- Not Evan, about- <laughs> Evan by, by the way, Evan, TMI, too much information. Yeah, yeah. yeah really Thanks too much. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, this this my is- job on the show is to show us where the line is by crossing it. <laughs> yeah, the next episode will be entirely on Evan's hygiene and, and mm-hmm. lack thereof. But today, we're going to talk about John Moore. And John, I just have such an affection uh, for this guy. If you don't know uh, his story, here's a little bit we're going to get into. Apparently, you have some experience over in Asia. You grew up for 10 years over there in your childhood. Where were you? I was in Tokyo, Japan. And no, my dad was not a missionary. And no, I was not an army brat. My dad was with Goodyear Tires. Goodyear tires. All right. Did you hmm. did your dad pilot the blimp or what was he doing over there? <laughs> no blimps in Tokyo. They were all here in Southern California. But uh, I have been. I have ridden on the blimp before. But uh, all right. he was uh, involved with Goodyear tires as the. I think his title was the managing director for Goodyear for the for the Far East. Wow. And hmm. what years of your childhood was that? From four till fourteen. All right. So Japanese is still intact. Nihongo akarimasu yo. Yes. Thank you very much. Okay. (laughs) And uh, it looks like you've also spent some other time in uh, Asia, kind of around basketball. Maybe we'll hear about some of that. But you came to the Mont, Westmont, Blessmont in 1976. And uh, was, uh, was Ruth Kerr a part of that class, John? (laughs) <laughs> no and 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 but david winter was the president so he was my president and he was your president he was so that's we right paths in that way yeah that's right well apparently you were a highly sought after point guard from cypress college transferring in and uh you've been in their athletic hall of fame and uh and then here during your senior year you led the warriors to the second round of the NAIA National Tournament, uh, where we lost in double overtime. Uh, do you have some gray hair over that event? Well, thanks for that memory, Scott. What's next? <laughs> I remember it well because I was sitting on the bench because I was I had fouled out of the game. I was sitting next to Chet Kammer and Randy Fun. Randy went on to become the Laker coach. Chet yeah. left Westmont to become Randy's assistant coach, and we both saw the last dunk, uh, uh-huh. literally, with uh, about two seconds on the clock. We were up by one point, and uh, the uh-huh. guy from Central State out of Ohio dunked, and my career ended at that moment in Kemper Arena in Kansas City, Missouri. Wow. Wow. Nice. Well, uh, your career, I guess, 422 assists. It ranks fourth in Westmont's history, and that is despite the fact that you only played two years here. That's incredible. So then you come back here. Well, and- that says – let me just interrupt you for a sec, Scott. <laughs> that tells you how well I I shot the ball. I, I, just, I just had to pass the ball because I knew I couldn't shoot the ball. So that's what it's all about. So we do have something in common, except not really, because, John, I'm not a good basketball player. But so when I get the ball, my first thought is, how do I get rid of this thing? (laughs) You and I were the same guy then. We knew our limitations. (laughs) Yeah, but Scott's passes don't land. That's the difference. Sometimes I pass them to somebody in the third row. But uh, so 27 years as the head coach uh, of the Westmont men's basketball. And uh, what a record. Um, gosh, uh, 600 and 
uh, no, 558 wins here at Westmont. Um, 32 years total as a college head coach. Here's a couple of things for the, those of you in basketball land. Uh, your Warriors, John, won the GSAC regular season championship after being picked, finished sixth in the conference entering this season. Um, that's incredible. Uh, you seeded number two in the Liston bracket of the national tournament. It's highest ever seed under the current current tournament format. That's just something else. And I don't think you expected that going into this year, did you? We did not. We had five new starters, four brand new players in that starting lineup who hadn't even been at Westmont the year before. And so it was a beautiful surprise to all of Westmont faithful, uh, especially to the coaching staff and to our team as well. But it was a joy. It was a wonderful ride and great season for me to end my career on, other than not getting to be in Kansas City together because COVID-19 ended our season just a little bit early. Yeah. Brutal. Yeah. Br and to get the NAIA Coach of the Year this season. That's a nice way to, to go out. It is a nice way to go out. That will never happen again for me and probably would have never happened again for me anyway. So let's end on a high note, right? That's called dropping the mic. Dropping wow. the mic. That's right. Well, tell us, John, tell us about the ending of this season, just even some of the circumstances. Uh, where where were you guys when you kind of got the news that uh, you weren't, the tournament wasn't going to continue? What What happened there? Great question, and thanks for asking it. So I remember exactly where I was. In fact, I was sitting right where I'm sitting right now on a conference call with – I'm on this kind of an elite board, NABC board of directors. I'm the only NAI guy on that. But we were talking about uh, the upcoming NCAA tournament, but all the tournaments that were coming ahead. And at the end of that call on, on March 12th, it was full speed ahead. And an hour and a half later, I got an email from the NAI saying that they were canceling the tournament. And then a couple hours later, all the NCAA tournaments were canceled as well. But at that point, I had to walk up to Westmont. I live close by and walk into M2 and talk to my players about their season ending. Mm. And you know the way the Internet works today and social media works. They already knew. But nonetheless, I made an announcement, lots of tears being shed together with the 17 guys in the room, including my assistant coaches and me. And it was one of those moments you would never want to relive again. And uh, and so we just shared with each other and kind of embraced uh, one another. It was before we knew much about the virus. And so we, a lot of hugs uh, taking place. And then we decided, I decided, I should say, that we were going to have a practice. Mm. So we had our last practice together that afternoon, and it was precious. A lot of fun stuff, a lot of laughs, a lot of, you know, guys don't giggle very well, but we giggled a lot uh, <laughs> at that moment. And, uh but it, there was more sadness than there was joy. Yeah, yeah. I imagine as a coach for all those years, you've had um, more than one opportunity to deliver hard news and um, or or console a team. Uh, how do you? What have you learned about those moments? About delivering hard news? About? Uh, yeah, I mean that's that's that must have been some walk up to the up to M two. It was. It was a hard walk. In fact, before I got into the room, I said a little prayer. And uh, I, I think the thing I've learned over my years as a man, a uh, man of God, is how important humility is and how important it is to be a follower before you're a leader. And I think if you learn how to follow, then you find a way to learn how to lead. And uh, God calls us to be humble. In fact, one of my favorite chapters in Mere Christianity is chapter 8. And he talks about pride. He, he calls it the, the heaviest sin, uh, the, the most devastating sin, and how pride gets in the way of so much 
of what we do. And so if you learn to be a follower first, then pride comes way, way uh, back there in the rear view mirror. And so I had to, I had to live with a good bit of, of humility in that, in that moment. And, and so what I did was I just said, I'm going to be as authentic with them as I need to be. And that took a, a good bit of uh, that chapter eight, mere Christianity. And uh, I love what, C.S. Lewis says in that uh, chapter at the very end, he says, if you meet the humble fellow, in fact, I'm going to read it to you real quick. Do not imagine the humble fellow uh, to be one who other people call humble nowadays. He will not be a sort of greasy, swarmy person who is always telling you that, of course, he is a nobody. He is more like, it says here, where where is it? Uh, you will enjoy him easily. In fact, you will find yourself to be a, a little envious of anyone who seems to enjoy life so easily. Hmm. And I, I, I love that about what Lewis says, because the, the people who I find to be the one ones I admire the most are ones who don't talk a lot about themselves, but they seem to enjoy life. Hmm. And that is one I would consider to be a, a humble man or a woman. And so I walked into that room. I was authentic as best I could be. And and I might have been the first one to show tears. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, how do you how do you develop humility in athletes that are uh, elite and you want them to have confidence. You want to coach the guy that wants the ball in the most pressure mm -hmm. moment. I, it sounds to me like you were that kind of player, tenacious and confident. Um, how do you how do you talk to guys about confidence without pride and so much of the showmanship, some stuff that we see in the culture? How do you develop that from even your faith infusing in that? Yeah, great question. Really good question. Well, let me start with this, which is probably something you don't want to hear. I don't think there's more selfish people in the world than male college athletes. Mm -hmm. Or maybe professional male athletes are more ego-driven. So it takes a good bit of time. And I don't think there's more ego-driven male college athletes and male basketball players because they are there are only five of them on the floor everybody has to pass catch shoot dribble play defense rebound all those things have to have to occur and there's no hat to mask you there's no helmet uh, so you can't see a face you're not a great distance away and so there is a lot of accolades that come the way of male basketball players. And so it drives them. And so it can be a real positive, but it's so important to remind them daily of how important it is to be a great teammate over a great athlete, a great player. Mm -hmm. And so that's what we talk a great deal about. In fact, when I recruit, when I recruited, I guess it is now, I would talk about how important it was first to be a great teammate and then to be a great player. Mm. And if you're seeking to be a great teammate as Jordan Spashek, uh, one of the finest uh, men I've ever known. In fact, if you haven't seen his Golden Eagle award speech, you need to see it for all those who are listening, for you, Evan, for you, Scott. I love that guy. Uh, get on, he is one of the yeah, finest young men. He is. He is. So when I first called Jordan to recruit him on the phone, this is what he said to me. I said, Jordan, tell me a little bit about yourself. And he said, Coach, I'm a player who is just looking to find my teammates in the best position they can be in. I want to find them in their sweet spot every time I throw them the ball. Mm. Now, that is being a great teammate. That's like you throwing to Eben his favorite song to play or to sing. It's like Evan throwing to you your favorite sermon, mm. your favorite opportunity to touch others because you know, I can do this. Mm. I am confident in my ability here. And that's what Jordan Spashek would do. He would put the ball in the position where all that other player had to do was say, okay, let's chalk this one up. I think I've got this one because Jordan put me in a position to be successful. Mm. That's good. Mm. 
That's awesome. And I'm glad to hear a little bit about that story of when you were recruiting him um, and what he said. And are there any other kind of things you look for when you're recruiting uh, guys to play on the team? Well, I'll, I'll usually be sitting at that table at some time. I'll be sitting at that table with parents. The table, we call it Alyssa Smelly's table right outside yeah. the gym. Hmm. And it's, it's, uh, it's where you've sat many times. It's where, uh, remind me again, uh, I forgive me, Scott. I can't think of your dog's name. Henry, right Henry Nowen. Henry Nowen. So Henry Nowen has been at that table, leashed up to that table many yeah. times. And so imagine for a moment, let me take you there. I'm sitting at a table with mom and dad and son, and we'll call this son Jim. So Jim is sitting there and mom and dad are asking me a variety of different questions. And I'll get to my philosophy here in a moment. But uh, he, I, I will say to every every time I have this conversation, I will say to parents and the son, there's only one guarantee I can give to you. And the dad leans in, the mom's sitting there curious as to what I'm about to say. The son's a little bit worried. And I say, the only thing I can guarantee you during your time at Westmont is that you will struggle. Wow. Uh. <laughs> and then they both, all three of them lean back and they look at me like I, uh, not somebody they want to hear from again, <laughs> yeah. but, but it's, it's, yeah. it's true. It's a guarantee. And it's, it takes me to my, one of my favorite verses in the Bible and it's Romans five, three through five. And here's how it starts. We exult in our tribulation. That's not true. We don't exult in our tribulation. In fact, when we get hit with a hammer, our thumb gets hit with a hammer, we don't exult in that. In fact, we cry, why me? But it's the next part that really counts. We exult in our tribulation because tribulation needs to perseverance. Mm -hmm. Scott, Evan, not always. Not always. In fact, the majority of the time, or at least the portion of the time, people give up at that point. Right. They mm -hmm. turn away and they say, no, nope, I do not want to persevere. This hurts too much. And the beautiful thing is what comes next. We exult in our tribulation because our tribulation leads to perseverance and perseverance leads to character. And we only get to character because we've had to persevere. And then the next part is exceptionally beautiful. We exult in our tribulation because tribulation leads to perseverance and perseverance leads to character and character leads mm. to hope. And that hope is in Christ Jesus. And that hope comes around because we know we're coming back to the struggle. We're coming back to the tribulation. But we know because of Christ and because of the hope that he instills in us we can live that tribulation again, and we're going to have greater character because of having to live through that perseverance mm. one more time. So as far as recruiting goes, Evan, mm -hmm. uh, it's not the most exciting thing. It's not a very sexy thing to hear that you're going to struggle, mm -hmm. but it's, uh, it's what leads to men becoming and women becoming the kind of leaders that they're capable of becoming because they decide to press on. They decide to have grit. They decide not to give up. That's so good. That mm. that's so good. And, and what a privilege, right? To be in a in a position as a coach to speak that into uh, young men's lives and try to forge them with that perspective. Um, right. It reminds me of a great quote uh, from a very average high school football coach. I believe it was me. And now I quote myself: "Gentlemen, hard <laughs> is not bad. It's just hard." And I've, I've, I've told that to my yeah. sons so many times. They're probably nauseous if they hear that line right now. But it's like, if, if you can forge <laughs> that idea that, that hard produces something good. And I, I always think James, by the time he pens the, 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 this deal of, you know, greet these trials as friends, he must have been a very mm -hmm. old man filled with wisdom and yep. uh, not, no longer trying to run away from the hard things. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I love hard. I love hard. And and what hard is 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 uh in fact a motto we have at, at Westmont is tough, smart, unselfish. Chet Cammer, who I played with, he said it he called it hard, mm -hmm. tough, and smart. 
but I've changed it a little bit. And uh, the hard part is the tough part. And uh, if you've been through hard, you've learned how to become tougher. And in, in the game of basketball, you want to be tough, smart, and unselfish. And the unselfish part only comes when you've learned mm -hmm. to become tough and smart. Uh, it's that teammate piece. You become a great teammate because you learn how to become more unselfish. And that, Scott and Evan, is kingdom yeah. work. Learning how to be unselfish as a basketball player becomes kingdom work when it's bathed in Christ. And that's what's beautiful about coaching at Westmont is it is bathed in Christ. And you get a chance to instill that in your players' lives and they get to understand it more fully. And the way you do it is just by practicing that every single day. Habits are not made in a second or in a minute or in an hour. They're made day after day after day. And so those habits of kingdom work really come through perseverance and hard, tough times. Wow. Let's take an offering. Well, I'm going to, I'm going to take some of this with me as I think about working with the worship team and uh, teaching classes and Stuff like that. There's this quote from you, John, that both Scott and I found, which was something I think you heard and then you realized was true. You don't have a philosophy of coaching until you've coached for 15 years. And, right. and it sounds like you've developed this philosophy of coaching and you've kind of got this legacy of like, you know, check camera before you and things you're building off of. Um, but are there any other principles of your philosophy of coaching that you would want to impart to us and that you think are just important for discipling uh, yeah, young people in for, general. Thanks for remembering that quote. And I, I thought I had a philosophy. In fact, when I first heard that I'd been a head coach for five or six years and I poo-pooed it, I thought, no, 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 I've got a philosophy. But it wasn't until 10 years later that I actually did have a philosophy that fits with the philosophy that I believe in the most. And my philosophy before that was we want to play an aggressive brand of basketball. And we talked about being aggressive on offense and defense. Mm -hmm. And that seems so limiting today because my philosophy, let's see, about 19 years ago, 18, 19 years ago, became this. And I'd ask you, if we had more time, I'd ask each of you, what does that mean? We want every single basket in the game of basketball, in any game of basketball, to come via the assist. You've never seen a box score where that has been the case. NBA, college, high school. Well, a few years ago, we, we won a game in which we scored 50 baskets. 44 of those were via the assist. And what an assist is, for those of you who are uncertain, what I'm talking about, is a pass that leads to a basket. What I love about the pass and what I love about that philosophy is that with that philosophy, it is a communal experience. Dribbling the ball is a singular experience. Shooting the ball is a singular experience, but passing the ball is a communal mm. experience. It's much in the way we pass the cup and the bread in communion. That is passed mm. from one to the other. It's not something that, okay, I'm going to hog the communion uh, bread plate, or I'm going to hog the communion, uh, it's called the chassel or the cup. Um, I'm not going to allow anybody else to have it. That's greedy. We and do look down really on that. No we do fun. look down on that. And, that <laughs> yeah. and so, so when it comes to my philosophy, Evan, my philosophy was developed in understanding how important it is to, to be a player who loves to share, who loves to offer his best to his teammates so that teammate can become better. And it's exactly what Christ did with his disciples. He found their best and he put them in a position to be their best over and over again. And then he got a chance to celebrate with them uh, over and over again. So I love that communal piece of what it means to have the pass as uh, a way to to share success so this is, with you're one You're just another. tapping into like what is so great about sports when it's in its proper place. It, because, I mean, what a what mm -hmm. an avenue of life lesson. Um, I know you can get big lessons in life through a lot of different venues, 
but this when sports is at its best right this is what it what what it offers us is this classroom for the rest of life and you john you are so in true. my mind one of the quintessential guys that takes that opportunity and and runs with it. i mean obviously you can hear it in your answers this is stuff you think this is in your blood you mm. are looking for these yep. moments and uh and i just think it's it's what makes you really incredible and tell me you you said a little bit ago mm. you, you talked about habits and for me, this is one of those clear transfer areas of sports to life. How, how do you think about and how do you teach about building habits to become or, you know, be able to perform at a higher level? And, and how does that transfer to spiritual formation? Yeah. Well, first of all, habits are something that you have to be patient with yourself on. And we have a tendency to be really hard on ourselves because we, let's say we break a habit and we make a mistake or we're challenged by something and we give up. Then we have a tendency to have that mm. negative self-talk that leads to us not, uh, not delving deeper. And there's a great, there's actually five laws of learning kinesthetically that apply across the board. And I'm going to go through them very, very quickly here. But the first one is explanation. Next one is demonstration. The third one is imitation. The fourth is correction. And the, and the last is repetition. And so if you kind of go through those five pieces, those fit into almost every circumstance we find ourselves in. First of all, we need to have things explained to us. And that's why it's so important mm -hmm. to be a follower first. And then after they're explained, we want to, we want to just see how it looks. How, how does, how does somebody who is saying something, how do they go about doing it? I've got this little thing in my Bible that I'm just looking at right now, and it says, love is the things we do rather than the things we say. I think that's that's incorrect. Love is the things that we mm -hmm. say and the things that we do. But the things that we say have to follow with follow with the things that we do. And so if we see some, hear somebody say something, and then what they do doesn't follow that, what they demonstrate in their life doesn't connect with that, that, that feels like mm -hmm. it's... Uh, a little bit odd, maybe hypocritical. But if it does, then what we choose to do is try to imitate that. And we want to see what that looks like in our lives. And then when we make mistakes, we want to have that person next to us who can correct us. And in those corrections, if they're done with, with gentleness and firmness, not just firmness, not just gentleness, but gentleness and firmness and grace, then we get a chance to repeat those things over and over again and build confidence in our ability to say those words of faith, those words of grace, and demonstrate those moments of grace and those moments of of faith. Uh, but those only come when we learn how to repeat them. And that's when the habits come in because we've had a chance to follow in the footsteps of those leaders that we get to stand on the shoulders of and, and learn how to do it because of what they've taught us. But if we have ego, and that's where C.S. Lewis's eighth chapter comes back in, we get to the point where we think we're mm. ready before we're ready. We're not quite ready yet. In fact, Reed Jolly, one of my favorite people in this town, was my pastor for many years at Santa Barbara Community Church. And he said something at one point in a sermon. He said, wisdom does not come, true wisdom or deep wisdom, maybe is the way he said it, doesn't come <laughs> before 50. And I thought to myself, that's not quite fair. Well, it's not saying that young people aren't wise, but they're not wise in the same way that they will be in their 50s, 60s, and 70s if they've traveled the path of Romans 5, 3 through 5, or that kinesiology 5 principle piece, or or even kind of the, the philosophy that we have in coaching of passing the ball, of learning how to be a better passer that, than a receiver. So that's a long-winded answer, but uh, I think some of those now, things say those words again. Explanation. Demonstration. Imitation. Explanation, demonstration, imitation, correction, repetition. That'll, that'll preach across uh, trying to develop fruits of the spirit as well. Yeah, well, I was going to say, you know, the people under 50 
they don't have the wisdom unless they listen to this podcast. They might. <laughs> the deep wisdom. Yeah, Evan, you are very young, fifty years. <laughs> yes, you know that? Really young. Yeah. <laughs> um, I want to drop just one of those random questions. Yeah. What is the craziest thing you've ever seen happen in the stands <laughs> yeah. during a game? <laughs> hey, that's a leading question, and you know it is. That is a leading question, and you know it is. Yeah. Uh, my mom is one of the greatest fans ever, and she's from Indiana. So if you know anything about Indiana and basketball, she can't help herself. Yeah. She can't help herself. So she is crazed. She is absolutely crazy. And so this is the funniest thing that, uh, but it's the saddest thing for me as well. So I was coaching, we were coaching down at a small gym down at Vanguard University. And my mom was right behind, behind us in the stands and the stands only go four, four deep. And so she didn't have very far to go. There was a call made on the other end of the floor against my team. And she <laughs> ran onto the floor ran down to the far end and started arguing with the referee. Now, the bad part about this story is the refs before the game came up to me and said, hey, I've heard so much about your mom. Is your mom going to be here tonight? And I said, yeah. In fact, she's right over there. So I I, I gave her up. I gave my mom up. I've never seen this woman in my whole life. That, uh, Exactly. So what does she do after the ref blows his whistle, calls a technical foul? She goes and she sits right next to the coach <laughs> of the other team. Oh, my gosh. So she had her wits about her. She said, if you're going to call a T, you're going to call a T on this coach. <laughs> uh. Not my son, uh, not, not that team. Quick thinking. Oh, all-time most embarrassing moment for her, for me, oh, for my team, for well, the other coach, for the, the refs. Now, was she, was she that kind of super fan when you were a player as well? Oh, there's more stories, but I can't get into all of them. But uh, uh, yes, is. yes. Uh, and she was hard on every ref. In fact, her favorite line was, use your good eye, ref. <laughs> <laughs> and and wouldn't you the irony of it is that my mom has gone almost totally blind in one eye and uh, and, and i know that's hard to laugh about but uh, right. she got what she called oh, out she's so. westmont legend uh wasn't there a game where she, she oh, she's always sitting with the students wasn't there a game where she was sitting with the the adults and and the students would have none of that Right. So she she was it, was it was during a timeout late in the game and Jeremiah, uh, what was Jeremiah's last name? Anyway, Jeremiah came and grabbed her, Kylie, Jeremiah Kylie grabbed her. And this is during a timeout. And I'm talking to my players and she is being led from the community section over the student section. <laughs> and I hear this cheer. And during timeouts, things are really quiet. Uh, and so I, I peered my head up and there's my mom being led. And I think they even put a referee shirt on her when, when she got to the other side and, uh, and the cheers just kept on coming. In fact, to the point where my players had trouble hearing me because of the elation that, uh, people had with my mom coming to the midcourt line. And fortunately, we somehow, it was a tight game, but we somehow won that game because I didn't want my mom to be a jinx. That is fantastic. That is. Well, I have one follow-up question. I'm gonna, I think we have some uh, quotes from some of your colleagues and stuff that we want to share with you and have you respond to. But my personal question, this is one that interests me. So what is your philosophy of competition and competitiveness? Because when I think about the story with like, your mom getting in the ref's face and, and my brother's an athlete and I've been around athletes a bit. And like, so during a game, you sort of have to enter this other reality where, you know, you're against these other people. And once the game's over, you know, there's a sense of like, okay, there's this Christian community and love that we have for, you know, our opponents and stuff. But how do you kind of balance what goes through your mind in a game when it's time to be competitive, when it's time to be like fierce and sort of, it's almost like the other team's your enemy for a 
an hour or something and then they're your friend. But do you have any thoughts on that? Am I making sense? You're making great sense, and I don't have any thoughts on that. <laughs> they remain my enemy. Evan, you were sitting there for a moment saying, I need to take a shower. And, yeah. <laughs> uh, no, that's a great question. And it's the, it's the ultimate question. Mm-hmm. It is go, the Evan. ultimate question of can you be fierce and can you also be grace-filled? And I think you can be. Mm-hmm. It's not easy. And so the answer to your question is delicately. And I have fallen on my face more times in that competitive fire that I experience. And I I am still to this day a work in progress when it comes to that. But I'm better today than I was that day I had to welcome my mom back to the bench 29 years ago or however many years ago mm-hmm. that was. Uh, and so I think it's it's much like wisdom. It comes over time. And the best competition is when both teams are competed at the are competing at the highest level. It's like when you hear a great sermon or you hear a wonderful piece of music and you say, maybe someday I can speak in that way, or maybe someday I can play or sing in that way. What best the best competition does for you is it brings out the best in both bodies, both parties. And so you want the other team to be exceptionally good on that night so you can both compete at the best level. And even the games that I've lost that have that we've competed at the highest level, they've been a lot more satisfying than the games that we've won playing against a team that uh, just wasn't particularly good on that night or we didn't play particularly well on that night. And so competition, whether it's in music or in the theater, in art, but especially in sports, it's when opponents bring out the best of you that competition is at its best. And so I think that's what we strive for. I remember Shirley Mullen, she was a provost at the time, and I was having a conversation with her about a sabbatical, about taking a sabbatical. And she said to me, you know, John, I'm not a very competitive person. And I had the most steely glare in my eyes at that point. And I said, Shirley, you are one of the most competitive people here at Westmont. You want the best faculty members. You want the best students. Don't tell me that you are not competitive. And she smiles (laughs) and sheepishly (laughs) said, hmm, you may be right. So competition comes in all facets. And so for people who say I'm not a very competitive person, I think, Evan, you're probably a really competitive person, maybe even more Mm -hmm. competitive than that brother of yours. Well, we'll have to get into later theology of (laughs) heckling. Please, because I I, I like both. Hey, Evan, play play a couple of uh, reflections here. And then I want to ask John a few questions as you look back on your career. But uh, Evan, do you have some tributes? Yeah, I've got three. So I'm going to play for you the first one. It's Mark um, Basham. Tennis coach. Let me play this for you. Dear John, a huge congratulations to you. All your amazing years of um, being the head coach at Westmont and really more than anything, what you've done to for um, our community and in sports and at Westmont and mentoring people like me and, and, and so many coaches. And um, any time that I've gotten to spend with you, talking with you, laughing with you has been such a, um, a blessing and a joy. And I'm, I'm so glad that you're still gonna be at Westmont in the kinesiology department, but um, you are a true legend and I admire you so greatly. God, God, God bless you. Oh, that's so sweet. Thank you, Evan, for yeah sharing. And that. that's just well, I got classic. More. It's not just that you've influenced your players, John. You you've influenced our campus. But I love that you are an influence with coaches, uh, and you've you've uh, helped them navigate the terrain. One of the things we did, we lost in the national t- tournament game and we lost uh, in the fifth game. So you have five games in six days. And after every one of the first four games, we would get together and put our hands in the huddle and we, we would say it. And the, the English uh, grammar teachers would have a hard time with this, but we put our hands in the huddle and we'd say, mm-hmm. we ain't done yet. 
and we cheer it over and over and over again. And so, Evan, Scott, uh, I ain't done yet. And I've got lots to look forward to. And uh, my grandfather lived till he was 95. My mom's 91. So uh, sorry, Mark Bation, but uh, you're still stuck <laughs> with it. me for a while. <laughs> All right, Evan, you got another one. Uh, All right. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read one and then I'm going to play one. So this is from Gail Beebe. John was a fierce competitor as a warrior athlete and brought that same tenacity to his work as a coach and a member of the kinesiology department. I'm, great, I'm grateful for the contribution John has made to the mission of the college, the way he added to the great basketball tradition at Westmont, and look forward to all that lies ahead for John. Thanks, John. Mm. So yeah, you ain't done yet. Ain't done yet. Yeah. There it goes again. <laughs> let me let me just play Kirsten Moore's. Hey, it's Kirsten. And uh, man, there's so many things that I am grateful for having coached alongside John in the basketball programs over the years. I think one of the ways that I will remember him most is just through his prayer life. Uh, when John prays, um, there's such a purity of heart uh, for his players, uh, for our mission at Westmont. Um, he just is, he feels it so deep to his core. And that was something that, um, just always encouraged me and that I felt like I shared with him and just, um, just his, his purity of desire for what he wanted out of this experience for his guys. I'm super grateful for that. I feel like I'll hear his prayers, uh, in my head and my heart, um, uh, for a long time and I'm grateful. That's awesome. There you have it. Yeah, Amen. how do you respond to that one? Uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's uh, it's only through the grace of God. I, I, you know, once again, Reed Jolly comes to my mind, and uh, you know, how many times uh, could we have gone a certain direction that we, you know, through God, through the Holy Spirit, have we chosen the other way? And it's only through the grace of God that I've learned how to pray. And uh, I will continue. Yeah. To be humbled by what that, what that means, what gives us the right mm -hmm. to communicate with our God. Well, it goes back to that very same thing of passing the ball. You know, that's what we get to do. We get to pass the ball to God and he passes it back. He doesn't hog it. He doesn't shoot every time. He actually, he wants us to experience the greatness of who he has made us to be. So if I'm able to pray in any way that uh, feels like a kingdom prayer, it's only because God has instilled in me the Holy Spirit. Which allows me to pray in ways that are meaningful, meaningful to others, but also yeah. meaningful to my my father. Well, John, we just have uh, a couple minutes left, but I want to ask you, kind of, as you look back on your career, um, briefly, three questions. What do you look back as as maybe one of the stings, one of the things that was that was a great difficulty. What is one of the great victories that you enjoyed and what are you most proud of? So sting victory and proud of. Yeah. Yeah. Well, the sting, there's probably a few of them, but uh, the one that comes to my mind is, as I said earlier, we lost in the national championship game. And in that game, our probably our most important player, Daniel Carlin had come down with uh, everybody thought it was a flu bug, but it was a, a de serious case of dehydration. And so he wasn't able to play. So the greatest sting mm. um, was that was that he wasn't able to play. But, uh, but later on that evening, uh, after we went out to a nice dinner, Daniel and I spent eight hours in the hospital together and he just had to find a way to become hydrated. And there was a lot of fear involved uh, because we weren't able to get him hydrated for the first three or four hours that we were there. So that's one of my fondest memories, being able to be there with Daniel at his mm -hmm. most uh, dire moment 
after experiencing one of the most uh, devastating blows in terms of wins and losses in the history of my uh, of my career. So that's a uh, it's a not I wouldn't call that one of my fondest memories, but that's a very fond memory being able to be there with Daniel and he to this day and I talk about that moment. But the hardship was in uh, losing that championship game victory uh, over uh, the second two victory that you enjoyed. Yeah, so in that two nights before that, we uh, we won in the semifinal round to take us into the national championship game, and West Vaughn had never been to a mm. national championship game in men's basketball. And so, you know, it, it fits back with that Romans 5, 3 through 5, doesn't it? Because uh, you have this elation, this joy that comes with uh, that Monday night victory. And on Tuesday night, the very next night, you experience the sadness that comes yeah. with with competitive athletics, but also in life. And what do you do at that moment? Well, what I got to do at that moment was eat a lot of humble pie and then go mm. and take Daniel to the hospital. <laughs> so we literally spent uh, six, eight hours in the hospital just hoping and yeah. wishing and praying for for healing. And so that took That's place. That's the uh, that ABC Wide World of Sports, moment. the thrill uh, of victory and the agony of defeat all in the same same breath. Yes, how about just exactly. as you look back, something that you're exactly. Exactly. that you're just most proud about uh, being involved with? Well, I was I had an early breakfast with a friend of mine, and I I, I had gotten a call yesterday from a former player, Nate Marsing, and uh, I just love all the different pockets of friendships that have been created over the years. And, you know, I can think back on that night, my first year, 93, 94, and how Andy Jerdahl and Matt Gazaway and Reggie mm -hmm. Williams are friends to this day. And then you go forward to the 99 team that went to the final four. And you think of Brian Gomes and Ken Napke and Joe Kearns and Brian Hahn, who were all on that team, as was Corey Blick and Ryan Monroe and Kevin Falconer and Robin Ely and Joe Ortiz and a few other other guys, but just the friendships and the depth of their friendship. And then you go to 2003 and Adrian Phillips and, and uh, Will Goley, Chris Clark, Mitch Pierce, uh, Ryan Romberg, Ryan Tillery. And today, in fact, I got an invitation from Will Goley. I'm going to surprise all those guys. They're going to be together at the NBA draft today and uh they're going to surprise wills asked me to surprise them i'm going to be on a conference call with them they have no idea it's coming in fact this broadcast isn't going online until that's right that's uh, right after three <laughs> o'clock today right <laughs> yeah. and so and then then i could talk about the most recent team and uh and uh or the the 15 team. And anyway, you can understand what yeah. I'm going, going through here. And one of the things that I've done for 35 years now, I've gotten together with a group of classmates from Westmont, only one basketball guy. The other eight guys are guys from different walks of life. And we spend time for 35 years now in Yosemite. Mm -hmm. And now we have Yosemite too. And Yosemite, too, is made up of Mark Miller's son, C.J. Miller, and Marcus Farron, and a number of guys who are uh, part of our basketball program, Nate Marsing, Jason Ritchie. And uh, so those are basketball guys who are doing what they did on the court, but they're staying in relationship. And they have been in one another's weddings they will be there uh, possibly, and I hope not, when one of them goes through a, a really yeah. uh, sad hardship. Yeah. Could be a divorce, could be a loss of a child. And uh, those will be their best friends because they knew, they learned how to do that. They learned how to deepen friendships in in ways that were really meaningful at the time on the court and, and some of the hardships they had off the court. But those things just shine them as iron sharpens iron. So one man sharpens another. That's what they get to do yeah. for one another for the rest of their lives. They will be friends for 80 years or 60 years or however long the duration of their life is. They will be in each other's weddings. They're, they will be named mm. after each other. Somebody will name uh, their son Chris for Chris Clark or CJ for 
C.J. Miller or Marcus for Marcus Ferran or Brian for Brian Gomes. And so the legacy just continues because of the friendships they develop. And and I, I was a, a part of it and maybe an important part. I don't want to uh, minimize that, but it was Westmont who did it. You know, it was much in the same way that a guy like David Winner came alongside of me and Chet Kammer came alongside of me as a student and Mark Miller brought me to faith. I went to, I came to Westmont. I did not have faith and Chet and Mark mm. and others prayed me into the kingdom. That's what's happening here at Westmont in athletics and in our men's basketball program. And that's the part that, you know, it's not the wins. I'm, I'm surely pleased about some of those and some of the successes we've had, but most of all, I'm pleased about what happens in their deep, ongoing relationships and how they deepen their friendship and they do kingdom work together uh, in addition to that. So that's, that's what makes me most that's encouraged, awesome. And it says so much about you, you know, John, in an age where people are called influencers because they can uh, take a selfie and, uh, you know, promote some product. I'm just so grateful to you. Thanks for joining us today. And thanks for sharing some of your heart and your story because you are and have been uh, an influencer for the kingdom in our community. And that has legs everywhere. So thanks for joining us. Yeah. Thank you so much. Oh, you're welcome. And last thing I, I do, you're welcome, both of you. Uh, I just have to say how important my wife and my daughters have been in this travel. This I haven't said anywhere near enough about them, but I wouldn't be half the man I am today without uh, how much they've done to help me become a man of, of greater wisdom and a man that's uh, seeking after God's heart. Mm. Amen. All right. Well, we're going to say goodbye. Thanks, everyone, for tuning into Chunky Theological Salsa with Coach John Moore today. God be with you all. 